This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. How fortunate, how incredibly fortunate we are to be endowed with this precious human body, this precious human life of leisure and opportunity, as they sometimes say. That's what makes it precious. There's lots of human lives that uh, don't necessarily have the leisure to spend a week in Sashin, the opportunity to practice this way together. Most fortunate. Uh, this is a cause for celebration that we're able to do this that we're able to manifest a human body. <clears throat> where we can see and listen to Dharma, or we can practice Zazen. Not only a precious human body, but uh, what naturally comes along with this is Buddha nature. We share the same Buddha nature as all the Buddhas of past, present, and future, lacking nothing whatsoever. Maybe sometimes apparently uh, hidden temporarily by our own uh, thoughts and feelings and perceptions, but... Uh, Lacking nothing, this Buddha nature. <clears throat> Perfectly complete, doesn't need to be improved in the slightest. We all have our equal share of it. Not only that, but uh, we're in this uh, precious temple, this practice place, and... Um, you all are used to it, but for me, I've noticed it's, it's quite hot outside. <laughs> but here in this temple, it's cool. Our air is conditioned. It's, it's to support our practice, so we don't have to just um, sweat and pass out and fall asleep. It's quite nice climate in this room. Not only that, but we're being fed these delicious meals, delicious and nutritious uh, offerings to support our practice and keep us going. Not only that, we have our friends all together sitting here. We have a quiet space and no one's bothering us. This is, this is like incredibly rare, right? We, it's easy to take it for granted. But um, let's stop to remember. We're halfway through Sashin. Let's stop to remember um, what a rare, uh, unique uh, opportunity we have to 
be this Buddha nature, to be ourselves completely. Like it says on the door, when you become you, when the, when the self settles on the self, when there's no resistance to our true self being itself, then Zen becomes Zen. It's our job to make Zen into Zen by being ourselves. Our, we might understand this as just being our personality, but also being our, uh, who we truly are, being our true self, <clears throat> which is the same self that, that we all share. All the conditions are set up perfectly for us to um, just drop into the present. And we hear again and again that that uh, <clears throat> our Buddha nature is like space. It's like aware space. And, uh, the aware part is actually, that's the really easy part. As soon as we ask, am I aware? Yeah, of course. It's not hard to, uh, verify the fact that we're aware. Basically, aware and knowing cognizant beings. That's, um, the simplest of all. But that this awareness is like space could be kind of simple, but that's the part that um, <coughs> many, many uh, people who know that they're aware don't necessarily think of their uh, awareness as, as vast as space, as open and empty as space, as timeless and boundless as space. Maybe one uh, relatively simple entry gate is um, first just confirm the fact that we're aware. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Not some special hidden awareness, but ordinary awareness. And then um, to just curiously and um, and um, joyfully wonder about uh, where this present awareness, this undeniable present awareness, where it's located. That might be a simple entry gate. Yes, I know I'm aware. Where is this awareness that is vividly apparent? Where is it? Actually, I can't say. I just, I can't say might not be so um, uh, difficult to realize that awareness, this ordinary awareness, is not located anywhere, actually. Why? Because only physical, material things have locations. 
right? And it's not a physical material thing, obviously, this awareness. <clears throat> so we can't have a location. We might imagine that it has a location, but um, just because we're so used to things that are located. But if we can verify the fact that this awareness is not located anywhere, then that's almost the same as verifying the fact that it doesn't have any edges or boundaries. It's almost a different, slightly different way of saying the same thing. If awareness has no location, that means it doesn't have any any edges. Only things with locations have edges. So that's how we mean by boundless. Just we can't find it anywhere, and yet we can't deny it either. And um, to just keep exploring this simple fact that awareness is present. We can't find it in any location. We can't deny that this is it. And then settle into this um, unfindable, unlocated, spacious presence. Spacious is just another way of saying unlocated. Like the space that fills the room is is not like um, the size of the room exactly. We might say that there's a box of space that fills the box of the room, but actually space is inside and outside the room. It's it's everywhere, right? And uh, our ordinary mind, <clears throat> our continuous, um, unchanging mind, the heijo shin, the, the peaceful and unchanging mind, is already like this. And if it's that spacious, then it's really the same thing as saying it's the host. It's the host of all um, experiences. <clears throat> it, it welcomes all experiences within itself. And all experiences clearly are not happening outside of this spacious awareness. If they were happening outside of awareness, awareness would have to have some edge, some boundary um, to keep the experiences outside of itself. That's a ludicrous idea. Also might be a little bit, um, a little bit, might seem a little tricky or something at first to, to verify the, the fact that <clears throat> this spacious, ordinary awareness is not, um, is never discontent. Because we as people might feel discontent. Even though our, the conditions are just are just perfectly set up, we might feel the room's a little too cool or a little too warm. The food's a little too um, spicy or a little too plain. 
might sometimes feel like that, and then we then we would might say, well, then awareness is is um, not completely content at that point. But those are thoughts. Those are thoughts and feelings, um, the guests coming and going within awareness. Awareness itself uh, <clears throat> is not discontent with the temperature or the food or the um or with having thoughts or with not having thoughts it's just uh openly uh, allows <coughs> any experience to manifest within itself from itself as a kind of decoration uh upon itself a celebration of itself. It hosts these parties, massive parties with hundreds of rowdy guests, sometimes sleepy guests, and it doesn't discriminate amongst the guests. That's the kind of host we share. Very ordinary. <coughs> and, uh, our ancestor Kazan Zenji, who um, <coughs> died in 1324, 1325. Anyway, next year is 2024, and uh, the Soto Zen School in Japan is going to host a, uh, a huge celebration of the 700th memorial of Keizan Zenji. And you're all invited. Yes? Not that I want anybody to be reading to It's a shame, but there's information on our board. Oh. Yeah. Something about the life of Keizan? About, yeah, the life of Keizan, which came from Soto Shu, as a pamphlet, and email that lays out the basic plan to, you know, for, for Sanda's Yeah. So, Gigi, one of the temples that we heard um, Keizan Zenji founded approximately 700 years ago is still a thriving practice temple in Japan, and that's the way they mainly celebrate this um, 700th memorial and um yes you you're all you're all invited can't remember the date but the, i think the dates are set and um i'm tentatively planning on going you're going ah oh, well let's go <laughs> anyone who wants to join choro and i um celebrate our dear friend and ancestor Keizan Zenji. <coughs> and if you don't go to japan to do it you can celebrate it right here right now because Keizan Zenji says with the help of Francis Cook the translator who puts a lot of um, well puts his Japanese into English but also puts these various things in uh, words in parentheses to help um, discern what he thinks Keizan means and I think he's quite good Francis Cook so he, um, 
<coughs> his last line was, your mind is what it is. And here he puts in parentheses, mind, so I think this is what Kaysan's referring to, and what we've been referring to. The one that we can't um, locate, but that we can't deny. Like, this one. <laughs> this, uh, this mind. It's like clear water. Really clear water. But you can't see it. As if the room is filled with clear water. It's like empty space. Pure and still. Interfused. With everything. Without obstruction. And free. Therefore, there's not a single thing revealed outside your own mind. Not a particle to obstruct your spirit. <clears throat> the whole essence that we're speaking of here is Shining clarity. <coughs> uh, Kazan means um, something like, K is something like shining or lustrous, and Zan is mountain. So like, lustrous mountain, shining mountain. And so he uses his character in his own name here, along with the character that means shining so um shining radiance or clarity that the whole essence is uh a shining clarity that outshines jewels like diamonds <clears throat> so don't compare even the radiant light of the sun and moon to the radiant light of the true self. <clears throat> to the jiko no komyo, <clears throat> which is a Dogen Zenji has a whole essay called Komyo, the Radiant Light, where he comments on this old Chinese phrase uh, from ancestor Changsha, who said, <clears throat> the entire universe in ten directions is within the radiant light of the true self. The entire universe in ten directions is the radiant light of the true self. Changsha said it both ways to help us open to uh, complete non-duality. And uh, Kazan says, this radiant light, and um, it's just another name for ordinary mind, uh, Buddha nature. <clears throat> Why call it radiant light? Uh, because light 
is uh, is illuminating the room right now, right? So we can see all these objects and appearances because of the light, but we can't see the light itself. Thus, it's another excellent metaphor, analogy for uh, our true nature. <clears throat> the light of awareness illuminates all these appearances and it's illuminating itself at the same time. The space is filled with light, but if we look for the light itself, we can't see it. We only see the things that it illuminates. So this is worth reflecting on. No pun intended. <laughs> and even in the early teachings, the, the Buddha teaches the prabhasvara chitta, the uh, luminous mind <clears throat> that's temporarily obscured by our kleshas, our, our habitual patterns. <clears throat> In the early teachings, the Buddha uh, sometimes taught that, rarely taught that, and then, and then the Mahayana tradition taught it more, like the Srimala Devi Sutra. Uh, Srimala Devi, Queen Srimala, teaches that um, <clears throat> this luminous mind is the um, another name for Buddha nature. <clears throat> it's radiant, it's shining, uh, it's illuminating itself and it's illuminating everything else but when you look for the illumination itself it doesn't look like anything it's like space it's like light it's like luminous space it's like empty brightness <clears throat> and this mind's Brilliant clarity outshines ordinary crystals and diamonds and jewels. <clears throat> so don't compare the radiant light of the sun and moon to the radiant light of the true self. Don't compare the radiant light of a blazing jewel to the radiant light of your own eyes. Aren't you aware of the saying, quote, everyone has a light, unquote. And uh, are you aware of that saying? That saying appears in um, case 86 in the Blue Cliff Record, uh, where the ancestor Yun Men, speaking to the assembly, says, um, <clears throat> everyone, each one of us has a light, a radiant light, but when you look for it, it seems dark and obscure. Everyone is awareness, but when you look for awareness as something, it's as if it's dark 
and hidden. <coughs> Isn't it like that? Because you can't see it as a, um, as an object. You can't experience it as an experience. It is the very nature of experiencing itself. It, it's what allows all experiences. But it itself is not an experience, which is an event that arises in a certain time and a certain place. It's the, um, it's the host of all times and places. So Yunman said, Every, everyone has a light, but when you look for it, it's dark and obscure. What is everyone's light? He asked the assembly. The assembly was silent. <laughs> so he answered on their behalf. <laughs> it's the Zendo, the front porch, and the kitchen. All, all insentient objects. Insentient objects. And maybe um, apparently sentient objects too. But anything that um, that the light illuminates. What is this light that uh, that when you look for it, you can't see, it seems hidden? It's um, everywhere you go. Uh, around this place, um, you, you're seeing the light. And non-sentient beings, um, the rocks, walls, tiles, and pebbles are the light. We might say, I can see how they're illuminated by the light, but um, they are the light? Uh, I can maybe even see how Chang Zhao could say, the entire universe in the ten directions is within, appearing within the radiant light of the self. But isn't it kind of a stretch for Changsha to also say, the entire universe in the ten directions is the radiant light of the self? <clears throat> this book seems to be appearing within awareness, because it's not appearing outside of awareness. Um, but isn't it a stretch to say the book is awareness? But then, if we're looking for, we know that there is a knowing of, of this book, a seeing of the book, is a kind of knowing of the book. So we know that there is an experiencing of this book, and then we imagine that there's another book <laughs> in addition to our experiencing of it, in addition to our knowing of it, in addition to our seeing of it. We imagine there's a, another book. So that would mean there would be two books. One is a book somewhere else, outside of our experience, and one would be the book that's that's being experienced. If we start to think about that a little bit, we'd say, would that... It, that's kind of, it'd be kind of strange to say that there's two different books. And then we might say, well, which one is more true if there's only one book? Our usual habitual mind might say, well, the true one is the one that's made out of paper, like, you know, a f- two feet in front of Kokyo and ten feet in front of you. That's the truest one because that's what, like, the physicists might tell us or something. 
but um, but which one is more experientially true? Um, some object made of paper that has a certain distance from your body, or the experiencing of the book. If we have to say that it's one or the other, this can be a this can be a a question for us uh, over our course of our day of sitting. It would be silly to say that there's two different books. So, um, which one do we trust as more real? I trust the paper one that's over there because that's what people have always told me. Books are made out of paper and they're a certain distance from my body. So, um, I trust that. But you can say, let's stay with our direct experience as much as possible. Which one is more experientially true? That paper one over there or, um, or awareness manifesting, expressing itself as an appearance of paper thing over there. We can contemplate this. We can hear the teachings and there's a kind of wisdom in hearing the teachings. <clears throat> That Buddha says, just hearing those teachings is a kind of wisdom. And then we can contemplate it. We can say, is that crazy talk? Or is that actually seem more and more in accord with my actual direct experience? Could it be that um, this could be a valid perspective, most true perspective, and then, still conceptual, this kind of wisdom from reflecting. Then we can, in zazen, looking at that wall hour after hour, open to the possibility that that wall is awareness. <coughs> when you look for awareness, the light, it's just dark and hidden. So what is this light of awareness? It's the wall of the zendo. It's the swing on the front porch and it's the kitchen stove. So, um, now, um, now we're aware of the saying. Are you aware of that saying? Everyone has a light. Saying of Yun Men. <clears throat> it's like that of a thousand Sons. He who is in darkness in a room looks outside where it's bright. But she who is in the bright light doesn't need to look outside. To see the light. Think. The Kazan's uh, instructing us, they're recommending that we think. Think quietly, just quietly. Think quietly about this. Colon. <laughs> Inside is not close and outside is not separate. We're allowed to and even invited to think about this. Inside 
whatever that means. Inside me is not closer to my true self. Inside, anything inside this body is not closer to my true self. And outside is not separate from my true self. It's what we call non-duality. And it's, um, <coughs> as I mentioned the other day, uh, Yogacara tradition says, uh, the, the, the unity school tradition, Yogacara uh, <coughs> teaches that um, the, the source of our problems is um, grasping. And in order for there to be grasping, there there needs to be a grasper and a grasp. And we can come to see that uh, grasper and grasped are not two, are undivided, are non-dual. And in that case, grasping uh, and therefore suffering uh, will be impossible. <laughs> so we can think quietly about this. Kazan says, though it has been thus in the past and present, you must not become arrogant or willful. So when I say, this is so simple, I got it all, I guess I'm a Buddha now. That's maybe too much. <laughs> because are we able to um, uh, be totally clear? Like only Buddhas see Buddha nature really clearly. Great Bodhisattvas see it like um, like a flock of cranes in the distance and mistake it for uh, trees or water. Kind of get it, but really clear, and then especially really clear when the situations get complicated, when the guests become unruly. <laughs> this, is, um, this is challenging, right? The ancestral teachers just uh, met each other in this way. This term, um, shoken, means mutual seeing, um, face-to-face meeting. <clears throat> Ancestral teachers met each other face-to-face in this way, and there was nothing unusual about it. Or, there's not much to it. Actually, the preceding situation makes this quite clear, the story of uh, uh, Buddha Mitra, Fudomita Dayosho, who practiced with Putsu Dhanandai Dayosho. This does not mean that mind must be reached by means of practice and verification, or that true mind must be reached by means of practice and verification. So often we do talk this way, and I think Kazan might sometimes talk this way too, but here he's trying to really um, free us from any dualistic fixation. So this... Ever-present awareness 
doesn't need to be reached by practicing and verifying it. Or that it's mastered by means of um, study and meeting. It just means that your original mind is intimate. Like this is what he's trying to say. We don't have to practice and verify it. Even that, which may be helpful to say sometimes, that we need to practice and verify it. But here he's saying, um, nothing needs to be done at all because it is so intimate. It is more intimate than our mother and father are to us. Those beings from whom we were born, it's more intimate than this. It's, um, it is ourself. It is our true nature. Too close to be close. <clears throat> it's intimate. You are the way right now and you do not look externally for a Buddha with characteristics or even a Buddha without characteristics externally from yourself. With whom are you in harmony? <coughs> from whom are you separated? These are words from the uh, original story. In the final analysis, it's neither unity nor separation because there's nothing to be in unity with or to be separated from. Though you say it is the body, or though you say essential nature is the body, they're not really separate. Though you say it is true mind, they're not united. Even though you arrive at such a realm, do not seek for mind outside the body or apart from the body. <clears throat> so we have this uh, great poem by um, Sekitoki Sen, the song of the grass roof hut. And it ends with this line, if you want to know the undying person, not the impermanent person, but the unchanging, undying, unborn person in the hut, maybe kind of implying that we're, we're living in this run-down, leaky hut body. If you want to un, if you want to know directly the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag. In other words, this human body, here and now. A wonderful teaching of non-duality. This, um, this skin bag we call the body in Zen. Sometimes we call it a bag of skin. A skin bag that holds all kinds of, um, all kinds of gooey stuff. <laughs> Not to be disrespectful or anything, it's just, I think it's just a way that Zen ancestors wanted to, um, remind us to, to, um, be disenchanted or, 
uh, with this, with this unreliable body. Take good care of it, but, um, don't rely on it too much because it's a kind of a rundown grass roof hut. <coughs> but if you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't just forget about the body. Don't separate from this body. Be, experience this body completely with all of its aches and pains of sashin. Exactly how it is. This is the light, right? So Kazan says, um, <clears throat> do not seek for this true mind uh, apart from the body. Even though we are born and die, we come and go. We people are impermanent. This is not the doing of mind and body. And the, the translator puts in parentheses, as ordinarily understood. All Buddhas take responsibility for the truth in this way and always verify it in the three times. All ancestors take responsibility in this way and appear or manifest in the three lands of India, China, and Japan, <coughs> and America. There is not, in the end, any confusion throughout day and night, and the twelve conditions of suffering, these twelve links of causation, are ultimately the turning of the Dharma wheel. <coughs> so the Buddha talked about how, do, how does suffering come to be? Well, there's ignorance. It starts, uh, it's kind of more like a circle, but we could, we have to start the story somewhere so we could say, we start with ignorance is just not, um, knowing our true nature. And based on this ignorance, we, um, uh, create karma. We feel like I'm a separate self that does things and we um, develop these karmic tendencies and uh, based on that um, dualistic consciousness is born. We could even say that the alaya vijnana is a big dualistic consciousness is, um, is what is born and reborn lifetime to lifetime is stored based on karma. Karma is and uh, manifests as this storehouse consciousness of duality and based on consciousness we have mind and body as separate and uh, <clears throat> based on that we have the six senses Dividing up the world into, um, um, knower and known, into grasper and grasped. Based on this, on the senses that are grasper and grasped, we have, um, contact of grasper and grasped. And based on this contact, we have, a feeling of pleasant or unpleasant. And based on this feeling, we um, either want a little bit more of the pleasant or a little bit less of the unpleasant, and we crave that. And based on this craving, we uh, then um, solidify it into grasping, and this grasping um, ends up becoming 
a new moment of a separate self illusion. And uh, based on this, there's actual birth as a, as a sentient being. And based on birth, there's old age, sickness, and death, and the entire mass of suffering and discontent. That's the, the twelve-fold chain of how suffering comes to be. So it's a kind of scary story. <laughs> but here, Kazan says, <clears throat> these twelve links of suffering are ultimately turning the Dharma wheel. This is again non-duality. What is everyone's light? It is the zendo and the kitchen and the front porch. It is ignorance, karmic formations, dualistic consciousness, birth, old age, sickness and death. Everything is a manifestation of the light. Therefore, these 12 conditions of suffering are ultimately turning the Dharma wheel. When you reach this realm, transmigration, rebirth in the five paths, sometimes we say six, the six realms of hell beings, hungry ghosts, animals, <coughs> humans, devas, that would be five, and then sometimes we add in these, these almost devas that want to be devas, these asuras, uh, birth and death in these five or six realms is nothing but the revolving axle of the Mahayana, the great vehicle. What an image. The, re- the revolving axle of the great vehicle, Dharma wheel, is this samsaric realms of birth and death. This is this is non-dual Zen talk. Uh, karmic uh, recompense, karmic uh, fruition in the four forms of birth. These are all the traditional early Buddhist teachings. Sentient beings are born from wounds, from eggs, from moisture, which was their understanding of how Mosquitoes are born, uh, or miraculously, like the devas are born miraculously. These are four types of birth in samsara, and due to karmic um, ripening. So this karmic ripening as these four forms of birth is truly the activity of the true self. <clears throat> Whether you <coughs> speak of sentient or insentient beings, these are just different expressions for the same reality, just as the Japanese words me and monaco both mean eyeball, eye in Japanese. So we have these different words that mean the same thing. This is what he's getting at. Um, but the, these different words me and monaco for eye um, are like um, the true self of total um, ease and joy and the six realms of suffering samsara. These are just two different names for the same reality. Uh, even though you speak of Buddhas and sentient beings, 
It's like kokoro and e in Japanese, both of which mean mind in Japanese. So again, Buddhas and sentient beings are just two different names for the same thing. Don't think that kokoro is superior and e is inferior. Or if we put it in Sanskrit, don't think that chitta is superior and manas is inferior. How can you devalue me and value monaco? This place is not the realm of the senses and their objects as separate, not the realm of mind and objects as separate, not the realm of grasper and grasp. Therefore, everyone is without exception the way, the Tao, the way it is. And there is nothing which is not big mind. <clears throat> this morning again, Kazan says, I have a few humble words concerning this situation. <laughs> Would you like to hear them? <clears throat> Would you all like to hear them? Do not say that speech and silence are involved with separation and concealment. How can the senses and their objects defile one's own true nature? So this is a, the first line is a, is a quote from this Chinese kind of pre-Zen teacher named um, Song Zhao. And uh, maybe it was one of those sayings that was circulating around China because um, uh, in case 24 in the Gateless Barrier collection, a monk asked Feng Shui. He quoted this line of, this old teacher, Sung Zhao, and said, speech and silence are involved with separation and concealment. Um, and this, this means like, um, kind of maybe counterintuitive. Separation is like, um, separation is like leaving behind, uh, um, the world of appearances is kind of like going beyond um, duality is is what Sung Jiao meant by separation and concealment is like uh, um, when non-duality is concealed or hidden. So um, so so the original quote is speech and silence are involved with separation and concealment, which is maybe implying that. Silence is involved with separating from um, dualistic um, imaginations, and speech is concerned with um, concealing non-dual reality. So, uh, so in the in the Mumon Khan, in the Gateless Barrier, a monk asked Feng Shui, "Speech and silence are involved with separation and concealment. How can I transcend?" 
separation and concealment, which would be also mean transcending speech and silence, go beyond that duality. And Feng Shui said, I always think of Nan in March, partridges sing amongst the many fragrant flowers, which was, uh, I think, in, like an old Chinese poem. How do you go beyond um, duality? And how do you go beyond um, speech and silence? It's one of those questions that the Zen teacher might start sweating when they hear that, right? Because if they don't say anything, they're like falling into silence. And if they do say something, they're falling into words. How can we transcend, go beyond speech and silence that are involved with separation and concealment? And the teacher, without missing a beat, just quoted this old poem. It's actually like not even about the present. Because it's an old poem, and the poem is also about thinking of the past. The poem is, I always think of Changnan in March, even though it's not March and I'm not in Changnan. I always think of that beautiful city in the spring when partridges sing amongst the many fragrant flowers. Did this, did this spontaneous poem go beyond speech and silence? Can words be used uh, spontaneously without getting caught in them? Just as expressions of, uh, of the host. Just as manifestations uh, without believing in the, in the duality that they seem to create. They're just the flow of sound playfully offered to the universe. So Kazan's verses, do not say that speech and silence are involved with separation and concealment. That's the line from Sung Zhao. How can the senses and their objects and the duality of sense and object, how can that defile one's own nature, one's self-nature? <clears throat> Is there anything um, that would be good to clarify more before we um, go back to Zazen about how to practice Zazen? Or anything else? Yes. So something I've been contemplating since this morning, or perhaps a little longer, I don't know, but vaguely remember asking you something similar years ago. But, uh, would it be fair to say, and I think this is just another aspect of the same thing we've been talking about, or included nature, is that it's not in relation to anything. It has no relationality. And so... Like Elliot's question earlier, I was thinking about the exact same thing, is to say all dharmas manifest from Buddha nature isn't quite right either. Mm-hmm. And almost yes. to me, it does make more sense to think of 
you know, identity as a relationship as well. Somehow it feels cleaner than saying, you know, so much is measured, where is it located in space and time? No, no, no. What does it have? What are its qualities? And all that's like, you know, it's not in relation. Um, yes. Even identity is a relationship that's... I think Kazan was mentioning porch, that. Yes. Yeah. Is it not the porch? Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, Yes, that's right. Um, that's a great point. That um, yeah, when we say form itself is emptiness, emptiness itself form. That can sound like a relationship between them, but um, sokuze, shiki sokuze, ku ku sokuze shiki. There, um, sokuze is like. Um, is itself form it's is itself emptiness so so you're right that when we when we get into speech and language it, even identity can sound like relationship but um because these are just fingers pointing at the moon but yes strictly speaking um even identity is a kind of relationship I, that's a nice subtle point that you bring up and i think that's what Kazan actually was getting at when he he said it's um <clears throat> it's neither unity nor separation. Uh, and um, yes, it's. we talk a lot about relationality and interdependence in Buddha Dharma. Of course, this is a, is a prominent teaching. Um, but in a way, you could say it's the dependent, dependent co-arising of all things is um, is a truth, but it's kind of, a conventional truth, because it's talking about how all things are in relationship uh, with each other. And uh, so uh, one of the great sections, I think, of Suzuki Roshi's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, <clears throat> is uh, the, the Mind Waves chapter, where he says, uh, he's talking about big mind, that I think he kind of coined this term for Buddha nature, and it's a nice one, right? It's a little bit like spaciousness. Big mind, um, it's just that the big that he's speaking of is not really like a size. <laughs> it's not like really big or really small, but we think of a mind as we, small. Sometimes it can, our own mind can feel claustrophobic. We're trapped in this little mind. That's small mind. So, um, Suzuki Roshi says, um, <clears throat> big mind uh, is not related to anything. Uh, small mind is related to um, things other than itself, but big mind is not in relationship to anything. It's not related. And I think that language is very provocative. Uh, and that's, I think, the same point you're talking about. Yeah, big mind is not related. Um, I think he says in the same section, because everything appears within it. So we might, we might then say, well, isn't that a kind of relation? Things appearing within something else. But, um, it's getting closer, I would say. Just like Changsha said, um, <coughs> the entire universe in the ten directions is within the radiant light of the true self, 
And that also said, the entire universe in ten directions is the radiant light of the self. First, it seems like um, our, our ordinary perception is like the Buddha over there on the altar, that one like way over there at the end of the room over there, that um, that, that Buddha appears to awareness. That's how I think most people usually would think, and even early Buddhism teaches that way. Those colors and shapes over there appear to awareness, which is over here. It sounds kind of okay, and that's how I think most people would think. That's called dualistic perception, that things appear to awareness. And then, um, then we can, we can contemplate how awareness is not located so therefore it doesn't have any boundaries. And then we, we can have a shift of perspective. So now that the Buddha over there is not appearing to awareness, it's appearing in awareness. So it's a little bit more intimate way to say it, but it's still kind of relational. Something's appearing within something else. So then we can contemplate this even more deeply and, and ask, are there two Buddhas? One that's... Um, appearing in awareness and one that um, is the actual awareness of it. And uh, we can then come to see that the Buddha over there is not appearing to awareness and it's not appearing in awareness, but it's appearing as awareness. And that's pretty close to um, non-duality in the realm of words. I don't think we can go any further in the realm of language. <laughs> but as, as Bhushan's pointing out, um, still, because it's in language, even to say the Buddha is awareness is still saying there's Buddha and there's awareness. <laughs> so it still seems like there's relationality, which is why um, <clears throat> in the Vimalakirti Sutra, when Vimalakirti is asked to how he would express the Dharma gate of non-duality. He just remains silent. But even that story gets told. So, yes, thank you. Can you, can you follow this strange discussion? And the, these are are these words distracting from the reality of presence? Maybe at some point they they seem like they are. We will have a lot of silent zazen um, today and the next day is too. Um, but uh, I, the Zen ancestors and the Buddhas seem to uh, offer a lot of words, I think just because... Uh, we're so deeply habituated to seeing the Buddha over there is happening to my awareness over here. And um, so we, if we don't hear anything about this, we just maybe um, fall into that usual pattern. And we don't notice that it's, that um, there is any alternative even to this. So this is all just, um, uh, teachings that we can 
hear, we can reflect on, and then we can, um, <clears throat> just by the very nature of reflecting on them, they um, maybe seep into our unconscious more and more so that during zazen, without even thinking about them, uh, we can open more and more to this possibility. Yes. Yeah. A fish, he's another fish, and he says, hey, how's the water? And the fish goes, put the water. Well, I want to know, because this Buddha nature, if it's everywhere, um, is, first of all, is that fish going to be any different? Is it going to be still its true fish self, now that it knows that it's swimming in water? <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, our how did, I'm not sure how this really informs my practices that make me think that there's something permanent and, I don't know, is that, that supposed to be reassuring? <laughs> yeah, well, well good question. It's a good question, Will. If the, if the fish is, um, asks another fish, um, what is water? And no, how's the water? How's the water? Mm-hmm. Well, they could also ask, "What is water?" And they'd say, "It's what you're swimming in." But they, they might say, um, "How how is the water?" And then um, and then the other fish says, "It's water." <laughs> yeah, they might they might or they might say, um, "Don't you know you're swimming in it too?" Oh yeah, I, I forgot. And then and then the question is. The fish who asked the question, is it any different now for that fish? Um, so we could say, on the one hand, it's not really different because they were already swimming in the water and now they're still swimming in it. But in that story, it does seem like it's a little bit different for the fish because um, it didn't it didn't fully appreciate uh, what was already happening before it asked. Right, so um, it it can appreciate uh, its reality more, especially if um, if the if it thought that the reality was problematic before, and then it hears that there's this way of seeing the exact same situation that you're in that's um, that's that's liberating, that's freeing from. Um, this problematic perspective without changing the situation just to see it from the other side um, actually changes our experience of um, uh, grasping versus non-grasping. So I, I think that's how the Buddhist tradition would generally say that, that the point of these teachings is to, is to free us from fixation or grasping uh, Based on misunderstandings, so and also generally, the tradition would say when there is some new perspective, when there's a shift of perspective, or a kind of realization, that that usually comes along with a kind of sense of like, oh, it was already like that before. It's like kind of like, ah, oh, I can't believe it. I it was already, I was already swimming in the water, but now I really. I really um, 
appreciate the fact that I am. It's not like something new is created, but more like uh, kind of maybe a humbling um, realization that um, it's always been okay, but I actually didn't think it was okay before now. So that's kind of, you could say, that's a big difference. Could be a big difference. Yes. Yeah, you bring up something that, um, yeah, I'd like to comment on. So, um, we've been talking about Yogacara and the subject object nature of the five or six senses. Yes. And how that dualism is uh, part of our delusional being. Yes. Being mm-hmm. It's a kind of... That, that the duality of subject and object is actually an illusion, according to Yogacara. Yeah. So, even when, even if we're practicing and we're seeing, we're seeing, oh, in, in one case, yes, this is one of the fish and this is water, uh, I read in in uh, Water Sutra that what I think it said <laughs> was Dogen was saying yes, but when you're in the mountains, you can't see the mountains. You're in the mountains in similar fashion to you're in the water. Mm-hmm. So we are always what I took away from that. In other words, was we are always in our sitting and in our practice um, within the context of our dualistic mind uh, as far as when mind is operating in that fashion. Does that make any sense? That we're, we're in the dualistic mind, but we don't know that we're in it like that? Yes, mm-hmm. and, and, and it is... It is when we have those tiny openings, mm-hmm. oh, I'm in water, or uh, I'm in mountains. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they're, they're mm-hmm. glimpses, yes. if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We're, um... <coughs> so that would be almost like changing the story a little bit with the fish in the water, <coughs> that the water is delusion in this case, and the, um, yeah, I think you were implying more like the water is more like Buddha nature, and then the other fish points that out. You're already in it. But the, but another way we could tell, we could tell the story, we could make a metaphor and say, the fish is swimming in delusion, and it, and it asks the other fish, um, you know, what is delusion? And they say, that's what you're swimming in. <laughs> and then, oh, really? I just thought that this was like all there is. And, uh, and, uh, say, no, there's, there's a, there's, there are other perspectives. I thought the only perspective was that the Buddha over there is happening to awareness. Oh, we could try out, we could experiment with the possibility that the Buddha is happening in awareness. It feels different, actually. It's the, I'm still seeing a Buddha, but, um, it's a little bit different. And then even further, the Buddha is appearing as awareness. And, uh, it's a shift of, I like thinking of the, of, um, these as shifts of perspective. 
even these words like awakening to, to call it a shift of perspective. And, um, and, uh, and when the perspective shifts, it's, um, in a way, again, with these analogies, in a way, nothing is different, still like appearance of a Buddha, but it, it has a diff, it has a different, it's a different perspective and the different perspective has effects on the person. That's another way we could say it is, um, reality is always reality, but, but the person who is used to the things happening to awareness, if they shift perspective, things happening as awareness, the, the body and mind of the person, um, some effects might play out there. Like, for example, the, the body might feel more relaxed. I said, that's strange. Why should the body feel more relaxed just by seeing that the Buddha is awareness? <laughs> but, um, I find that, that there are such things and it's kind of nice. It's not the main point that the body relaxes more. The point is actually the, the perspective shift is freeing, but then these, have these kind of side effects that we notice something's different, like the body's more relaxed and also the mind is more relaxed. Yes. Um, I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about, so there's been a lot about non-sentient or objects of those being awareness and sitting there and thinking of them as awareness. But um, I was wondering if you could speak to like not or sentient people as awareness, like when I'm sitting there and thinking of Elliot or any Torah or anyone else in this room as awareness and kind of what shift of perspective comes from that. And I'll say add a little context like the fish story. Uh, David Foster Wallace used it as an opening in a like, famous commencement speech he gave. And the point of the speech was to be more considerate and like kind to other people and like consider what they're going through and things. And he used that as like the opening to that is like you don't know what's going on around you or mm-hmm. anyone else. Um, and so I was just wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit to that too. Yes. Well, um, in a way, when we, uh, when we, when we as um, sentient beings think of other sentient beings like another person, it's almost as if we're thinking of them as non-sentient beings, actually, right? Because we're not like in their mind. We're kind of seeing them as a, as a, as a color and sound. We, of course, we know that they're a person instead of a rock. So there's some difference, but it's not that big a difference. Basically, the way we're, the way we see thing, see rocks and hear rocks and, um, taste rocks and think about rocks is kind of similar to the way we, we, um, see, hear and think about people, uh, as, as kind of objects in our consciousness. So, so not that different really. And, um, that non-difference is also why, why, um, on the other side of things, that non-sentient beings are teaching the Dharma <laughs> because they're not that different from sentient beings <laughs> in the way that, um, and the other, so the first not different is like, they're all this objective dualistic perceptions in a diluted sense, but then from the awakened sense, both the non-sentient and the sentient beings are the pure manifestations of Buddha nature equally. So they're equally 
expressing the truth. That's how they're teaching the Dharma. Yeah. When you're holding another person's mind in your mind, you know you're holding their subjectivity as well, which is subjective. Well, you're imagining their subjectivity. It's based upon relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, so of course it's, of course there's many differences thinking about rocks and thinking about someone that you really know. Um, I'm emphasizing the similarity is that it's still, it's still our mind's projection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think what, when Yun Men said, um, was this, everyone has a light when you look for it, you can't see it, it's, it seems dark and hidden. What is everyone's light? The kitchen and the zendo. Um, he could have said, um, and, uh, and all of you, and all beings throughout the earth. He, he could have said that, included that too. They're also, of course, they're the light. But maybe by saying the kitchen and the main gate, it was more shocking. I think they often like to, if we only have a few words to say this, what would be most radical way to say it? And um, <clears throat> he brought up non-sentient beings because it's, it's provocative. <coughs> but um, uh, Changsha the one who said um, the entire universe in the ten directions. It, it was It's a series of kind of lines that he said all together in one verse. Entire universe in the ten directions is within the radiant light of the self. The entire universe in ten directions is the radiant light of the self. And the final line is, in the entire universe in ten directions... There's not a single person who is not myself. Which, that's more about, that's bringing in the sentient beings part. So, yes, when, and in a way more important than non-sentient beings, we want to relate to other people um, as um, not even interdependent with us, or related to us, but most intimately as they are actually ourself. Wow. Yes, that is the gate to real compassion. That is real compassion. That's how I would understand. From a, a, It is said in the teachings that um, another name for Buddha nature is great compassion and great loving kindness. And uh, sometimes it's Buddha's. Buddha nature has these natural inherent qualities of impartial love and compassion. So um, that's how we can make sense of that. We can say that's just a nice teaching to say that the Buddha nature is loving and compassionate. But this would be the principle of um, why it is actually so. Uh, yes. Uh, very useful. <laughs> Maybe the most important point, in fact, if, if this Buddha nature teaching frees us from discontent, but, um, but it's, it's also not, um, the way it allows any, it allows itself to appear in any way. It allows the appearance of suffering and others, and it's not afraid of that suffering. You could say what blocks compassion one way to talk about that would be fear of suffering. Like, that person's too suffering for me to even deal with. They're too out of control. Like, 
and they get out of here, that would be like um, a separate self resisting a compassionate response. But no, that actually, that's me, my true nature. And uh, there's no separation here. So there, and also, and also that suffering is not, um, doesn't damage our true self or hinder our true self. So therefore there's a, there's an openness and yes, how can we help? Part of, part of the true self is caught in a, in a, um, a web of, of illusion that creates this suffering. And so how can we free the suffering? It's almost like, uh, the Buddha nature perspective on love and compassion would be not exactly love and compassion for sentient beings, but like the compassion for suffering, the compassion for this, for this contraction in reality that, um, just wants to free it, whether it's so-called my suffering or so-called your suffering, almost doesn't matter. It's just the natural impulse to release the, the contraction. Like a, like holding a fist for a long time, really hard like this. Like if we notice, wait a second, this is painful. It's not like, I wonder what I should do about it. It's more just naturally. Well, let's just like release it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, it's so such a natural response, and you could say Buddha nature responds that like this. Yes. So if we all have this uh, this Buddha nature, then um, why is it that some individuals of Buddha was able to say have things like uh, be able to recall his past lives or uh, read other people's minds when everyone else could, and they were also very skilled meditators too. Yeah. And even maybe more importantly, the Buddha was completely free from suffering, and other people weren't. But they all equally shared the Buddha nature, right? So, like uh, this, this um, one of the one of the stories from the traditions says um, that um, when he's talking about the Buddha nature is the same for us and sen- for sentient beings, for all of us, and for the Buddhas. The Buddha nature is identical. It's not like even more developed than a Buddha from this, from this ultimate perspective. It's, it's fully developed for everyone. But what's different is the obscurations, the habitual tendencies that seem to hide it. Don't even really hide it or obscure it, but they seem to and they function that way. So then in this, in this, um, this formulation from the Buddha nature tradition, it says, um, Sentient beings are just Buddha nature that's um, almost completely obscured. Bodhisattvas are um, Buddha nature that is partially obscured and partially revealed. And Buddhas are just Buddha nature that's completely unobscured. The Buddha nature is the same in all three, but there's different degrees of um, obscuration or um, covering Layers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different, or like there's there's gold, and for sentient beings, it's it's gold ore encrusted in a lot of rock around it, so it seems to be hidden. But the gold's the same. But for the Buddha, it's it's um, pure gold. The, the rock 
encrusting the gold, encasing the gold is dropped away. And is the way to do that just to remove the hindrances or other practices? So, strictly speaking, the tradition would say you like that, yeah. The only, from the Buddha nature perspective, the only actual practice is to so-called remove the hindrances or the obscurations, but but remembering that removing them is like they're not something other than Buddha nature, actually, in the first place. That's what we've been talking about, right? That um, even that, like Kazan says, even these 12 links that, of causation that create suffering are themselves the turning of the Dharma wheel. So delusion is also a manifestation of Buddha nature, a manifestation of Buddha nature that at the same time obscures Buddha nature. So it is often said removing is a word that's used, but we might say more accurately, it's um, what is this removal, removal project? It is just seeing clearly the nature of the obscurations. That is removing them. It's not like we have to peel them off or something, get, or get rid of anything. But at least from the mo- more non-dual perspectives like Zen, you say just something has to be done, but that's just really um, recognizing the, the nature of the obscurations. And that goes back to, to this earlier question, is anything different? Yeah, it does seem like Buddhas are different in some ways than the sentient beings, and they're similar in some ways. And the difference for these fish or these beings is that um, seeing the nature of the obscurations and that thus being free, from not being pushed around by our own stuff, Great investigation, I say. <coughs> May we carry it into um, into zazen, the wisdom of hearing, reflecting, and meditating, becoming.